last week we saw how Paul had to explain why he had to change his plans. So you can see in the outline that the first point there talks about real discipline. Paul's example applied. Uh, verses 5 to 11 of chapter 2. Now the discipline that we are talking about here is not how parents should discipline their children, although I'm sure that's a topic that uh, many of us here would be interested in. Rather, the discipline the passage is talking about is church discipline. Now, I'm sure that is not a topic that gets many people's hearts racing. I'm sure none of you woke up this morning and thought, ah, what are we going to get for the sermon today? And then you flip, hey, church discipline, hey, come on, come on, come on. we must not be late. Right, okay, I'm sure that did not happen to anyone. Now, this is why it is so crucial and so important that the primary way, as the people of God, the way we learn the Bible is that we go through book by book systematically. So in that way, we do not miss anything important. Because if it were up to Andrew and I to choose, we might just choose the things that we like, uh, our favorite hobby horses. And we will miss important things like this, church discipline. And so for this first major part of the sermon, we will be considering together the topic of church discipline. And what I mean by church discipline is uh, where the church, where its leaders, its members, uh, in obeying scripture, take active steps to address unrepentant sin. Uh, and we follow the, the, the system, the process that was laid out by our Lord Jesus in Matthew 18, you know, where uh, one person goes and speaks to the sinner first, and if the person doesn't listen, he brings along a few more, and if the person is still unrepentant, uh, we tell the whole church, and we uh, excommunicate. We, we do not allow the person to join us in the Lord's Supper as a way of treating him as an unbeliever uh, until there is repentance. So that's what I mean by uh, church discipline. Now, it is important for us to know how Paul, in the letter of 2 Corinthians, got to this point. And as I've already reminded us, what we saw last week is Paul at pains. Right? He was at pains to explain to the Corinthians why his change in plans was not because he was uh, fickle and uh, because he wasn't led by the Spirit. So that was what we were talking about. And the question is, how does this passage, uh, church discipline, how does it relate to all of that? How does what we read last week link with this part concerning church discipline? Well, the answer, the answer has to do with what Paul laid out. How he explained to them why he had to change his plans. And he explained to them that his motivation, his motivation for doing so was because of love. And you can see that in uh, verse 4 of chapter 2 where he says, instead of coming to them, he writes to them. And he says, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So what we can see is 
Paul set forth his example clearly. This was my motivation. And how it links to this part regarding church discipline is he wants them, as they have seen his example, to apply his example now to this situation of church discipline. They've seen the example of his, his apostle's heart of love. Now, it's the, example, it's, it's the opportunity for them to apply their motivation of love as well to this uh, sinner. So what we can say about the situation, uh, most likely is there was a member of the Corinthian church who had sinned. And most likely he had sinned directly against Paul. And the church, in uh, listening to Paul's previous letter, had listened to Paul and exercised discipline on this offender. And, praise be to God, the the letter worked. Paul's admonition worked. The church uh, applied discipline, and the discipline worked. The offender had repented and was now seeking forgiveness. But the problem was that the Corinthians had not forgiven him, and it appears had no intention to forgive him. So that's why Paul, after sharing his motivation behind uh, the change of plans, he turns now to this issue so that he can get them to apply that same motivation of love and to be willing to forgive the repentant sinner. So that's the situation. And I want to note with you three things that we can see from this passage. The first thing, obviously, is the reality of church discipline. It is practiced. It is done. The Apostle Paul uh, encourages and and, uh, uh, admonishes his churches to do that. Look at verse 9. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. So you see, for Paul, an obedient and maturing church practices church discipline. So let's take a short digression and just ask why is church discipline necessary? Firstly, as I've already said, Scripture teaches it. And you can look at uh, passages in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 where uh, it clearly uh, teaches us to enforce church discipline. And the reason why uh, Paul would teach that, the reason why Jesus teaches that, is because of Jesus' own commitment to the purity of the church. See, the Paul who wrote 2 Corinthians also wrote in Ephesians of Christ who so loved the church that he gave himself up for her. To do what? To make the church holy that he would cleanse her by the washing with water through the word so that he could present the church to himself as a radiant church, a church that has without a stain, without blemish, but holy and blameless. You see, this is the commitment of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the church, his people, would be without stain and blemish. So the whole purpose of exercising church discipline is that when we know of sin, serious sin, or serious heresy in the life of one of the members of the body. We don't just sit back and do nothing. But we must address it. Because this 
is the commitment of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave himself up so that this could be the purpose. Now the second thing that we note from this passage is the certainty. The certainty of forgiveness when there is repentance. Yes, when there is sin, uh, when we care about holiness, we must address it. But it is not for the purpose of just uh, kicking the person out. The final purpose, the, the, the agenda must be to see our fellow brother and sister restored. When he sees the concern of, of his fellow and brothers for this part of his life, and we pray uh, that he may be repentant and may acknowledge his sin, the goal is restoration. Now, some of you may ask, okay, okay, uh, how do we know that this person in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 had repented. Right, there's no uh, explicit mention that this sinner had in fact repented. So how do we know that there was indeed repentance? If you're asking that question, good question. Okay? And the answer is also a good answer. Okay? The answer is this. If there was no repentance, Paul would not have said, forgive him. Simple as that. Okay? If there was no repentance, if Paul was not sure that there was repentance on the part of this sinner, Paul would not have said, forgive him. Okay? Because this is a clear principle in the Bible. This is a clear principle that Paul himself teaches. In uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Okay, let me read that again. He says, Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now, so often we think that uh, what this passage is saying is that, okay, I've been forgiven, I must also forgive. Okay, that's true. That's very true. Okay, that is so important and so true. But there is more okay, that is being said here. Because Paul is saying, just as, meaning in the way that the Lord has forgiven you. Now, how have we received forgiveness? When we have turned away, when we have acknowledged our sin and expressed repentance. Right? It's very clear in the Bible that God, through Christ, does not offer forgiveness unless there is a turning towards Him in repentance. So, just as in this way, where God has forgiven us because we have repented, so you must also forgive when the person has repented. So, look at verse 10. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Notice, that Paul says that it is in the sight of Christ. That Christ, uh, as it were, standing there, giving his approval. Yes, very good, forgive, forgive. Because this person has repented. This is the way that I have acted towards you. In the sight of Christ, Paul says, when this person has repented, I forgive. So you too must also forgive. The reality that we see here is the certainty of forgiveness 
when there is repentance. The third thing that we notice is that the failure to forgive and to restore the repentant brother and sister will be to play right into the hands of Satan. Look at verse 11. Paul admonishes them to forgive, verse 11, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. The reason why we must forgive when the brother or sister has turned in repentance is because not to do so would be to fall straight into the trap of the evil one. And I can guarantee you the evil one has no good plan. He does not have our interest at all uh, in his heart. Yet, so many churches, so many church leaders fall right into the hands of, of Satan. Firstly, when we refuse or when we are afraid to practice church discipline, or when in this case, when the person has repented, we are unwilling to forgive. We play right into the hands of Satan. Friends, at the heart of this is the motivation of love. Love motivating us indeed to do and to carry out the painful process of church discipline in the first place. Because we, we, we see the love of Christ for his body. We see his commitment to the purity of the body, the holiness of the body that we cannot, when we know of sin, just sit by and do nothing. We must be motivated by love to do something and to see the person restored. And that's right, the motivation of love, when there is repentance, motivates us to receive and to restore the person back into fellowship. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that uh, everything is back to normal, because the example of a church treasurer who is embezzling funds from the church, he now acknowledges his sin, uh, asks for repentance, we must forgive, accept him back into our fellowship. But it would not be very clever of us to reinstate him as church treasurer. Like, it makes sense, right? There's fellowship. We do not withhold fellowship. There is uh, a relationship that is restored. But it doesn't mean that he goes back to being church treasurer. Okay, I'm thankful we have a good one. Okay, okay. <laughs> And friends, in all this, we are walking in the footsteps of Christ, who was so passionately committed uh, to the holiness, to the purity of the church that he died for. So that's the first major part of the sermon, or the first sermon if you like it. Now we turn to the second major part, where we learn about true ministry, where Paul explains his competence to do true ministry. Now, in this section of uh, chapter 2, verse 12, all the way uh, onwards to chapter 7. Okay, so the, the section that we just read and just concluded is Paul dealing with his past dealings, right? Uh, with the Corinthians. Why he changed his plans and uh, the effect of the letter that he wrote, asking them to do church discipline and all that. So that's the past dealings. Now, he goes on to the present issues that's facing the Corinthians. 
the present issues that's, that's confronting the church there in Corinth. And this section that we'll be going to look at, it is part of the centerpiece of the whole letter. This part that we're going to be looking at is part of the, the heart, right, the theological heart of the letter, where Paul, in the longest section anywhere in the letters, of his letters, is giving a sustained defense of his ministry. And the reason why he is to give such a defense of his ministry is because newcomers, new preachers, new teachers have come to Corinth and they seem to be more impressive than Paul. And what they are doing is they uh, are dismissive of Paul's ministry. They uh, thumb down, they, they, they uh, are dismissive of what Paul has been doing with the Corinthian church. And instead, they have sought to commend themselves. They put themselves as higher than Paul. Uh, they have sought to commend themselves by boasting of their own achievements. And so Paul has to respond. He cannot take that lying down, not because he takes it personally, not because his ego is hurt, but because these newcomers are not doing true Authentic Christian ministry. It was not genuine ministry that these people were doing. And so, if the Corinthian church fell for that, there would be serious consequences for them and for the witness of the gospel in that area. And so Paul has to. So he takes up his pen and he defends his ministry. And he explains what true Genuine, authentic Christian ministry looks like. And because of that, brothers and sisters, can I say, we should be forever grateful. So, before looking at that, I want to point out to us what Paul says about his competence, his ability, his sufficiency to do that true Christian ministry. Look with me to Chapter 2, verse 16, the second half. After Paul has talked about uh, how the gospel is a fragrance leading to life for some, but leading to death for others. He follows on and says, And who is equal to such a task? In other words, literally what he's saying is, Who is competent for this? Now, we would expect that the answer is, No one. Who can be competent to do that? that sort of thing that leads life to others and death to, to some others. But actually, Paul's answer is, who is competent for this? I am. I am competent. I am competent to do this, unlike the peddlers, verse 17. Because I do not peddle the word of God for profit. I'm not like these newcomers who preach the gospel in order to get money and who will... Uh, uh, corrupt and massage the message in order to get more hearers. I am not like that. Therefore, I am competent to do this. And he explains why he can confidently say this in chapter 3, verse 4 to 6, where he says, Such confidence as this is ours true Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence 
comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see, very clearly, Paul says his competence, not from his own natural ability, his talent, or his uh, great intellect, but his competence comes from God. It is God who has made Paul competent. You see, there was nothing earthly or human as to the source of Paul's competence. It comes only from God. Oswald Chambers has said, All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies. Because their unusual dependence on Him made possible the unique display of His power and grace. Now, does He mean then that God will not use people who are somebodies? No, no, because He carries on to say, God also chose and used somebodies, those people who are somebodies in the world. But He used them only when they renounce dependence on their natural abilities and resources. So, brothers and sisters, as we learn from Paul in just a few moments what true Christian ministry looks like, and I hope and pray that as we learn what it is, we want to be doing this, not some other form of Christian ministry, but this, what Paul says, is genuine ministry. I hope that we can first uh, look to God not our own natural ability, that it is Him who will make us competent. It is He that we must depend on to shape and to mold that we might indeed be competent for such a task. So, true Christian ministry. Now, we could spend five more sermons on this passage. Okay, so I do not have time to look at every single thing that Paul has to teach us about true ministry, I have chosen two. Okay, so the first one is, true Christian ministry is being led in triumphal procession. True Christian ministry is being led in triumphal procession. And that's what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Now when Paul says triumphal procession, it is something that everyone who heard him would have understood. Because the triumphal procession, it was a a lavish parade. And it was conducted in Rome, when significant military victories were won. And it was to celebrate those victories. And it was like our National Day Parade. Like everyone in Singapore knows how National Day Parade is like. like. Some people are so sick of it that they don't even watch it anymore. Like me. But we know what it's like. And so when Paul says triumphal procession, everyone will have an idea what it looks like. And so when the Roman emperor leads that triumphal procession. Right? It is the highest honour he could receive as the emperor to lead one of these parades. And, in contrast, to be 
led in one of these parades as one of the prisoners of war, as one of those people who have been captured uh, and defeated, showed the person's utter and complete defeat. So the one who's leading it, highest glory. The ones who are being led, utter defeat. So what does Paul mean when he thanks God that he leads us in triumphal procession? Well, some have understood Paul to be thinking that God is this victorious general leading a parade, yes? And Paul is one of many soldiers, right? He has fought with a general and is part of this triumphal uh, conquering army. Now, this, of course, is possible, but I don't think it makes the best sense of the letter as a whole. Now, the letter as a whole, 2 Corinthians, again and again and again, very clearly is against worldly notions of triumph. 2 Corinthians as a letter is clearly against that type of Christianity that has no place for weakness and suffering. So, the better understanding of what Paul is saying is that yes, God is the one leading the triumphal procession. But if Paul is not one of the soldiers, then what is he picturing himself to be? Well, the shocking answer is that he is picturing himself as one of the captives. That he is one of those prisoners of war being led in chains. And so, yes, God, because he is triumphant, he is leading that procession, he is getting all the glory. And Paul is this P-O-W, suffering, humiliation and disgrace. And Paul is saying, yes, precisely, precisely it is in his weakness, precisely it is in his suffering, that as a slave of Christ, that God receives all the glory as the ultimate triumphant one. You see, Paul has already spoken of his sufferings, already spoken of his weakness and his hardships. Now, to the world, when he looks at that, sees failure, sees failing in ministry, epic fail. But Paul, in actual fact, is engaged in authentic Christian ministry. My friends, think about it. What is at the heart of Paul's proclamation? What is the message that Paul is proclaiming as he goes around traveling, suffering these hardships, going through all this distress and heartache? The message that Paul is proclaiming is that of a crucified, a suffering and crucified Christ. And the humiliation and suffering of Christ is reproduced in the life and the ministry of the messenger. It cannot be any other way. How can a ministry that proclaims a message of the crucified Christ be anything other than in weakness and in humiliation and in suffering? The ministry must conform to the message. 
the message must govern how the ministry looks like. So Paul's idea of true Christian ministry is so different to the image that's portrayed by some churches. Right, the ministry is all about victory after victory, you know, miracle after miracle, there's great success in large numbers, there's, there's always keen acceptance of the message. Right, what we have always called the health and wealth gospel. Right, this, these preachers of this health and wealth gospel, they are not uh, satisfied to be following the chariot. They want to come onto the chariot with God. God is here leading the procession and they want to get onto the chariot with God and wave as well. But Paul's picture, in stark contrast, true authentic ministry, he understands it as God leading the procession and he, as a, as a, as a slave following, suffering defeat, failure, weakness, on his way to death. Friends, can I say, please do not for a moment think that this health and wealth gospel is just out there with those churches. Because the reality is that it is also in here. It is also in here. Yes, we are not as blatant as them. But there is, nevertheless, that notion that resides in every one of us. Because somehow we believe, right? somehow we believe, right, that as true followers of Christ, somehow we must be immune from the suffering and the distress that other people go through. Somehow our marriages must always work. Somehow our children must, must grow up to be Christian. Right? Somehow it cannot be too hard, too bad. Right? Isn't that why? Whenever ministry gets hard, whenever there is rejection and pain, what's our first reaction? Draw back. Reduce our commitment. So brothers and sisters, what is your view of Christian ministry? The second thing that I want to point out to us about true Christian ministry is that it is backed up by hard evidence. Okay, true Christian ministry is backed up by hard evidence. Look at chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, apparently, these newcomers, these new uh, preachers and teachers that have come to Corinth, they did not come alone. They came with impressive letters of recommendation. Right? Maybe people uh, in other parts of uh, the Roman world writing about how you can trust so-and-so's ministry, how this person spoke at our church camp 
and did such a good job. Wow, this person spoke at our Easter convention. You know, uh, he really did a good job. There were so many people who came and attended. So these newcomers came with impressive letters of recommendation. You see, just this week, <clears throat> I received in the mail uh, these postcards. And these postcards are from my uh, former students at UWA, where I was their staff worker. And they wrote to thank me for that uh, year of ministry that I did with them. So, when I apply for the job with BTPC, I can come and say, these are my letters of recommendation. You see? Huh? This student, scholar, you know, sent by Tan Tok Singh, you see, are very good at mentoring. Wow, so grateful for this and that. Huh? Good at playing basketball, um, play table tennis well, uh, show so much love, you know, give so much good advice about BGR. See, to use, <laughs> to use letters of recommendation would be to do that. But unlike those newcomers, Paul doesn't need letters of recommendation. Because the Corinthian church already is his letter of recommendation. Look at verse 3, where he says, Christ is at work. They are a letter written by Christ. So Christ is at work in them, through the Spirit, on the hearts of these Corinthians. Right? Because through his ministry, Christ was clearly at work. These people now have the Spirit. These people uh, are now in Christ. So that's the hard evidence that Paul gives. You yourselves are my letter, he's saying. The Spirit powerfully at work in Paul's ministry. It's his letter of recommendation. But there is another uh, hard evidence that I want to draw our attention to. Listen as I read verse 2 again. <clears throat> you yourselves are our letter, written on your hearts, known and read by everybody. Now, did I read it correctly? Anyone listening? Okay, I read it again, huh? You yourselves are our letter, written on your hearts, known and read by everybody. Okay, any difference to the translation in front of you? Okay, what is it? Okay, so it says our, whereas I read your. Now, there are some translations of the Bible, and indeed some uh, commentaries on 2 Corinthians, which argue for your as a better translation. So, uh, you know, our Bible comes from many, many manuscripts. So there are some manuscripts which have our, some manuscripts which have your. So, which one is correct? Is it our hearts or is it your hearts? What is Paul saying? Now, if Paul had originally written, written on your hearts, what is he saying? He is saying that my letter of recommendation is in the fact that you exist. But if he does that, okay, listen to me carefully, if he does that, he would be getting close, coming close to falling into the same trap that the newcomers have already fallen into, which is basing his credentials in ministry as to, as to 
uh, what he has achieved. Looking to success, looking to the big numbers of the Corinthian church as a basis for why he is a competent minister. So Paul does not want to go near there. Right? All through the letter, that's what he's fighting against. Commending himself based on success, based on achievement. He does not want to go near there. And so that's why I think the better reading, the more correct reading, what Paul definitely would have written, is not your hearts, but our hearts. Okay? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts. What does that mean? He is saying that the proof that his ministry is real, is true, is Christian, is authentic, the proof is in how much the Corinthian church has been engraved, has been written in the very core of his soul, that he cannot separate himself from them. They are there at the very deepest part, the very core of his soul. There, at the heart, Paul has the Corinthians. The proof of his ministry lie in the love and in the concern that he has for them. They are inscribed in his heart, in his soul. That's the proof. You, your letter, my letter of recommendation is in how much I love you. That's what Paul is saying. And that, that is authentic, true Christian ministry. True Christian ministry is backed up by heart evidence. Do I have you in my heart? Not how well I preach. Not how well I can conduct the service. Not whether I wear a tie or not. It's do I have you in my heart? Is your well-being here? Is your standing in Christ here? See, because true Christian ministry is not just about being nice. Right? So many people think. Pastors think that way. Church members think that way. That Christian ministry is about being nice. You be nice to me, I be nice to you. But it cannot be just about being nice. Because if my concern is being nice to you, then I would not want to offend you. Then of course, no need to talk about church discipline. I will only try to give you what you want. But Paul's ministry is backed up by heart evidence. He loves them, his concern is for them. And we've seen, right, even just these few chapters already, we've seen how much he truly cares for them. How much he truly cares for their standing, their maturity in Christ. That he would rebuke when necessary. That in, in rebuking them, causes him so much anguish. That he's concerned over how they are doing. Right, when he arrives at Troas, there's an open door. Right, it's just like, <clears throat> you know, you go to uh, uh, this part of the world and then people are responding in droves. They cannot get enough of the gospel. There's an open door. See, that was what Paul had in Troas. But he says, I couldn't concentrate. I, 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 there was too much anguish in my heart. 
I was too burdened over my concern over how the Corinthians was doing because I couldn't find Titus there. I was, I was expecting an update. How are they doing? That, that in the face of an open door, Paul couldn't do it. Someone else do it, he had to leave. He had to find out how the Corinthians were doing. He had so much of them on their heart that he was willing to suffer. That in his life, in his letters, we see this yearning, this longing that they be mature, that they grow. True, authentic Christian ministry. It's backed up by heart evidence. And so friends, we must look to God. This uh, willingness to suffer and be defeated and face humiliation, this having this sort of love for God's people, it's not something we can produce on our own. We must look to God to make us competent. We must look to God to use us and shape us. Friends, we must look to what God has done in the sending of His Son. That yes, His Son was one who suffered in order to give God this glory. That the ministry of the Son of God was to go through suffering before glory. It will not be different for us. It must not be different for us. It cannot be different for us. And all this was motivated by love. God's love for us, Christ's love for us. So we must look to God, what He's done in Christ. To see how much He was willing to suffer, to see the depth of His love for us. That we, in turn, might more and more begin to reflect and conform to this message that we have the privilege of proclaiming. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for not leaving us in the dark. Please, as we hear and learn and grow in the gospel, for your glory's sake, shape us to be competent ministers, not unwilling to suffer and having your people at our heart. Amen.